Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're once again joined this week by one of our favorite guests and basically our unofficial co-host at this point, Megan Gorman. Megan is the founding partner of Checkers Financial Management, a fee-only planning firm that specializes in high net worth and ultra high net worth families in San Francisco. Checkers focuses on establishing long-term relationships with families and helps them navigate through tax, estate, liquidity, and investment planning. Megan heads the firm's family office services practice. She's also a senior contributor for Forbes in personal finance and tax and quoted regularly in the press as a tax and financial planning expert, including such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and CNBC, among others. She regularly blogs at www.thewealthintersection.com and has appeared on numerous podcasts, and is a regular weekly commentator on the Money Tree podcast. It's great to have you back on, Megan. Thanks for having me, David. How are you doing this year? Well, I can't complain. The year has, you know, hasn't been going long enough to get off to a bad start yet. So there we go. We'll keep putting on the good stuff. Exactly. And it sounds like we got a good one today in terms of uh, the, the celebrity estate plan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our subject this week is Aristotle or Nasus. We did Jackie O, and now we're doing the other half of that Nasus equation. Uh, Aristotle was a Greek shipping magnate who amassed the world's largest privately owned shipping fleet and was one of the world's richest men. From the mid-1920s to his death in 1975 at age 69, Onassis embodied the phrase many fingers and many pies. In addition to the aforementioned international shipping empire, he also had interest in tobacco trading in Argentina, casinos in Monaco, Greek airlines, and even South American whaling as well as some potentially less savory dealings with the military junta that ran Greece in the mid-20th century. In his day, Onassis was one of the most famous men in the world. However, today, he's likely best known for his brief marriage to former First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy after the assassination of her husband, John. Onassis was a longtime friend of the first couple and was said to have been infatuated with Jackie, and who could blame him? They married on the 20th of October, 1968, on Onassis's private Greek island, Scorpios, which is just the greatest possible name for a private island. While our marriages are contracts, this one was more so than most, uh, Onassis offered Miss Kennedy $3 million to replace her Kennedy trust fund, which she would lose because she was remarrying out of the Kennedy family. After Onassis's death, Jackie would receive $250,000 each year for the rest of her life, and he passed away of respiratory failure in 1975. Now, if $250,000 dollars a year doesn't sound like a lot, it's because it's not. Onassis's financial legacy was severely limited under Greek law, which dictated how much a non-Greek surviving spouse could inherit, which was fine with her, his daughter and only other heir, Christina, because in what should come as no surprise to listeners of this show, Christina very much disliked her stepmother, 
And after Aristotle's son Alexander's death in a plane crash in 1973, she actually convinced her father that Jackie had some kind of curse alluding to the assassinations of both John and Robert F. Kennedy. Still, Jackie wasn't going to be satisfied with being left with such a paltry yearly allowance as the widow of a man worth over $500 million. After two years of legal wrangling, she eventually accepted a settlement of $26 million from Christina, and then waived all other claims to the Onassis estate. After losing her father and collecting her massive inheritance, Christina renounced her U.S. citizenship and donated the American portion of her holdings in her father's company to the American Hospital of Paris. She held dual citizenship in Greece and Argentina throughout the rest of her life. So, Megan, while most advisors don't have clients with quite as expansive an empire as Mr. Onassis did, clients holding assets in more than one country is becoming more and more commonplace. What does your thought process look like when you encounter a client with international holdings like this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things, just big picture, is I want to just talk really briefly about Onassis's fortune, because when we say it was like a $500 million fortune, in today's dollars, it's a $2.5 billion fortune, right? It's a very, very large asset base. And when you deal in this space, people are not just going to stay within one country, and they go everywhere. But if you are a U.S. citizen, if you're married to a U.S. citizen, you have ties to the United States, you're a taxpayer here, when you have things that are outside the U.S., you have to be focusing on a couple of things. From a client standpoint, clients are going to focus on control, ownership, and making sure there's efficiency. That's really important from a client perspective. But for those of us who are advisors, we're going to be focused on something different. We're going to be focused compliance and transparency. And those two words are sort of the mantra in working with international clients in this sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to point out that the U.S. is sort of very aggressive uh, in pursuing clients with international assets. That They're not going to miss it if you have anything substantial. It's uh, sort of the IRS has kind of identified uh, sort of expats as, as a group that they can kind of put their hand in their pocket and it's not such a large voting base that it'll piss anyone off. So they can kind of just, right. you know, they will go after international stuff very aggressively. Well, well, and that's one of the key tenets of U.S. taxation, which is the United States taxes your worldwide income. I have clients who haven't lived in the United States for years, but they're U.S. taxpayers, and they are taxed on everything. And that's different than other countries. Some countries only tax with, with what is within their borders. So when clients who are international realize that, there is a sense of frustration, and, you know, we've been through eras where there have been offshore tax shelters. And I think there's this mystique amongst Americans that if you're wealthy, you're doing something nefarious overseas. But for most Americans, particularly since the Obama era, you know, compliance is where you spend a lot of time and a lot of money to make sure that you're working well with your overseas assets. And we have a lot of acronyms, right? You hear about things like FBARs and FACTA, you know, but really what the U.S. government is asking you to do is make sure that you're being transparent and in compliance and sharing with them the data on the assets overseas and the income coming off of it. So, so a really simple example, David, is let's say you're American, but you were born in the UK, and you still have a bank account over at Barclays Bank. And let's say you have 50,000 pounds in it. You would have to report the bank account to the US government because it has more than 10,000 US dollars in it. 
You would have to report the account number, what bank, the highest balance through the year, and that's a foreign bank account reporting form, or an FBAR. But then on your tax return, on your Schedule B, if there's interest from that account, you have to report that there as well. So that's where I say it's about transparency and compliance. And that is a very simplistic, straightforward example. But for most people, that's where they're running into international issues. Now, for other Americans who have substantial assets, people often say, well, is there, is there a threshold? Like, where should I be sort of worried? And I think a good, you know, with the bank accounts, it's $10,000. With other assets, it's really if we start getting over 100000 that we've got to be thinking through how we do everything. So for, for most people, it's when we're hitting that $100,000 threshold. Now, what's been unique, and this is sort of like the Onassis case, right, is we have a lot of Americans today who are buying property overseas. I have more people buying in places like Portugal, Costa Rica, than I've ever had in my life. And what we have to make sure is when people are owning things overseas, that we're owning them appropriately and reporting them appropriately. And so that's one of the things to take away from the Onassis case, because in his situation, he owned things like the Greek airline and so on. And see, in his estate plan, he focused on setting up two companies, one called Beta, one called Alpha. And he used those two companies to handle a lot of the distributions from his estate. And I think a lot of Americans should think about that if they have sizable asset bases overseas is maybe it's necessary to have a holding company that owns the assets that you can use to pass assets at your death. And those are the types of techniques that we see going on. That's a lot like the Onassis estate. Now, I'm glad you brought up this idea of seeing more and more clients uh, buying property and buying land overseas. Because uh, I think what mm -hmm. was, you know, in the last several years, what was sort of a rising trend, and which I think kind of actually exploded a little bit during COVID, was sort of shopping for passports, right? Because a lot of countries more and more have identified sort of citizen by investment, citizenship by investment, whereas whereby you can sort of get knocked to the front of the line of the citizenship process or the naturalization process. Yeah. If yeah. you invest Probably the most famous of, of that is, the most famous of that right now is the Portugal program for golden visas. Yeah, and so you have people literally shopping for passports where it's like, okay, because a certain European passport will give you access to X different countries automatically via treaty. And so it's, it makes certain passports higher profile and, and more attractive than others. And sort of this has become a new trend, right? Where, you know, putting your money into, into this also not only gets you the land, which has its own value, but also gets you the passport. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And this is where, like, the good news is for people who are doing this in Portugal or Italy or Ireland or Costa Rica or Panama, you have a lot of people doing it. So there's a well-tread path. But I would advise anyone doing that, you really need to have a good CPA or tax professional on your side because you want to make sure you're doing everything correctly. Now, I will tell you, people are also doing more unique things. Let's say you're trying to build something in a country that doesn't have such a well-worn path, that's not a Portugal, and you want to be built, like, let's say you have an island, like Anassis had Scorpios, and you want to be building on that island. 
I will tell you a lot of those Americans who do that, do that through a series of holding companies. So you might have a Delaware LLC that holds a holding company in the Caymans or the, or the British Virgin Islands or in Luxembourg, which is some of the stuff that, that Onassis did, that ends up owning it in the country in which you have the property. And in those very, very intricate situations where you have people making substantial investments, you know, where it's millions of dollars, one of the things to also keep in mind as an advisor is you can go and get an official tax opinion. So I have often at times when working with clients with this, go to E&Y, Pricewaterhouse, Moss Adams, and ask them to do an official memo on what are the taxation risks and what should the client be doing. And I think that's important because when I go back to the Onassis estate plan here, uh, you know, he was a really savvy guy, right? He wasn't an attorney, but he understood transactions. He understood deals. To your point, he sort of had his finger at everything, right? And I think that what he did a very good job of is constructing it in a way that it was easy to have transparency and administration, particularly for somebody coming from Greece. And I bring this up because his daughter, Christina, inherited things in a very corporate structure. But David, you know, the international piece I think is fascinating, but one of the things that, there's, there's two other big things that stick out at me with this estate plan. And I hope you don't mind if I get into this at, the, at this moment. Oh, uh, by all means, go right ahead. Yeah. So one of the things about the Onassis estate that is fascinating is it, it's a Greek tragedy. It really is. You know, this is a man who had two children and his son, Alexander, was his heir. You know, he had a daughter, Christina, as well, but he was very traditional, very Greek, and Alexander was going to inherit this empire and grow it for the future. And Alexander, as you mentioned, dies in a plane crash. And, and that really takes the life out of Aristotle and Assis. It, it devastates him. And as a result, in his estate plan, he does something where he says, look, I'm going to take half of my estate and pass it down my family line. And I'm going to take the other half and I'm going to set up a foundation. And in today, he probably would have been one of those guys that made the Gates Foundation pledge, right? He was mm -hmm. doing it before it was trendy. But he took half of his assets and at his death, it went into the Alexander Onassis Foundation. And this foundation still exists today. It's one of the largest foundations in Europe. It focuses on promoting Greek civilization and culture around the world. And, and if you're ever in New York and you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you can see the Onassis Library that was funded by this great foundation. And so a lot of times clients, when, you're, when you think about this, right, you can be a bit of a, a little bit of an Aristotle Onassis because when you go through the estate planning process, you often say to clients, look, I, I know you're passing everything to your kids, your grandkids, but what if everybody goes, right? What if everybody dies and you need an ultimate contingent beneficiary, right? Or, or in some circumstances, clients say, look, enough money is going to my family. I want to do something charitable. One sort of interesting thing to think about is using a donor-advised fund to meet your charita charitable goals. And, and as has been talked about on this show before, donor advice fund is sort of your own way to set up a charity. You open it up under an umbrella organization, like a community foundation, like a Schwab, a Vanguard, a Fidelity, all the big brokerage firms have it. And you have your own 503 entity. 
And so like Onassis, you could decide at your death that you want 25% of your estate to go to your donor advised fund. And what's nice about that is you could do that in the estate plan when you spend the money with the attorney. But let's say when you set that up, your big goal is to fund the local homeless shelter. But as time goes on, and you set your beneficiary designation to your donor advised fund to that, but that's, then say 15 years down the line, you're not as close to that charity anymore, but you're close to your alma mater. You can just do via form for your donor advised fund who will get end up being the beneficiary of the donor advised fund at your death. And so it's a really quick and easy way to do estate planning. That's a lot like Aristotle Onassis. Yeah, I mean, I really love donor advised funds. I, I say it every time we bring it up on the show, which is actually fairly often. Because yeah. there's so much you can do with them because of the simplicity of opening them and of, and of how, you know, they're largely managed for you, but you still can have, you know, as much input as you want in terms of, you know, where this money is going. You know, it's also just donor advised funds are great as sort of a training wheels for if you have a very young heir. And they're going to get money eventually, but you don't want to just throw all the money in their lap. So you can kind of have them in charge of a donor advised fund that has a certain amount of money. See how they, you know, get just get used to like pushing it around. They can't like th there's no fail state there really. The fail state is they give it to the wrong charity or something. Like what is that? You know, <laughs> so well, there's nothing they can really do wrong. It just gets them used to handling the money before they actually have their own real money. It's, it's true. And here's the interesting thing about donor advised funds. You can either do it the way I said it, where at your death, everything goes to the DAF, and then it goes to a beneficiary as laid out by the DAF, or you can pick beneficiary account owners. So if you have children, they could inherit the DAF, the DAF gets funded by the estate, and then they can give the money away. Just remember when you fund a DAF, it's irrevocable. And funding a DAF through your estate plan can mitigate estate tax. And that can be a very powerful thing for wealthy individuals. So there's another aspect of this that, I mean, it comes up all the time on this show, but it is sort of a, such an integral part of this particular story, given the big fight that happened at the end of this. But we're looking at a blended family yet again, right? We have a second marriage here and he died while in the second marriage. And, you know, we have Christina, we have very few heirs, which is unusual in this case. Normally you're dealing with piles of children, but we have one who unfortunately passed Alexander and only one surviving heir from a previous marriage. So it really is sort of a 1v1, you know, stepmother, stepdaughter situation here that, that we end up with at the end. Is there a way, you know, how do we avoid this? We keep seeing this come up again and again and again. And, and sort of all these stories, it's almost a cliche at this point that step parents yeah. and stepkids just, just end up not getting along and then it costs lots of money. Um, so, so what can so families do to sort of see this, you know, this identify, I'm in a second marriage and, you know, things and just identify and anticipate that something is likely going to happen. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And, and by the way, Aristotle really loved Jackie's kids. So they were part of the 250 a year she was going to get. But I think he did this a very, in a very good way, right? Because he contractually laid out in his estate plan what Jackie Kennedy was going to get. She was going to get two fifty a year. But to give context, that's about $1.3 million in today's dollars, or the spending power of $1.3 million. And it was structured that some of it was to go to her kids while they still lived with her and then revert to her. But what he did is he wanted to make sure that she wouldn't contest this estate. So one of the things that he did before he died was he got her, in exchange for this quote-unquote annuity, 
to resign from any claims of inheritance. And he made sure he, she did it on a document in the United States. And so if she was to challenge the estate, she was going to forfeit the annuity, okay? And so that was really, really, really important because he built in all of these what-if clauses if she contested the estate and what she, you know, what she would forfeit. But there's a famous scene that happens in this, in this story. It's been documented in many books where, you know, Christina, the daughter of Aristotle and Assis, she's devastated. Her father's dead. Her brother's dead. Her mother is what had died. She had lost all of her immediate family members within 29 months. And she's in the car in France, Paris, going to the funeral, sitting next to Jackie Kennedy. And Jackie brings into the car with her Ted Kennedy. And they're going to the funeral. And in the car, Ted Kennedy starts launching a negotiation into, is Jackie really just going to get what's in the estate plan? And they come to a streetlight. And Christina opens the door, jumps out, and jumps into another car filled with her own family members. She just wants to get away with from them. And I, I tell you that story because what Christina does next, I think actually well served the family line. And I think people should know that this is an option. And that is Christina didn't want to deal with Jackie because in 1975, you know, Jackie Kennedy was a 45-year-old, 46-year-old woman. She could live 55 more years, and Christina was 25. She didn't want to deal with this woman anymore. There was so much contention. So what she did is she did a lump sum payoff of Jackie Kennedy of $20.5 million, you know, roughly the equivalent of $106 million today. But remember, it's a, it's a huge, huge asset base. And I bring this technique up only because in exchange, Jackie signed away all of her rights to the estate. And remember, surviving spouses always have rights. But she forfeited that for this lump sum payout. And I bring this up with advisors, particularly advisors who work in the high net worth space, because it's a great technique if you can do it with um, you know, marriages that have sizable asset bases, multiple marriages where there's a death. And it's also a good technique to do when you're dealing with divorcing uh, spouses with high net worth, ultra high net worth, which is forget about alimony payments, pay them a single lump, present value it, and pay them a lump, lump sum up front. And that's what Christina did here. And I think she did it to give herself peace of mind. And she felt, and the committee that was picked in the estate documents, because it wasn't just Christina administering it, she felt she had the flexibility to do that. So I would make the argument, David, that Aristotle Onassis did some really good estate planning. This is not one of those cases where it's like, oh God, what was he thinking? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up this idea of uh, peace of mind. I think that gets lost when uh, often when we're sort of looking at the, the you know the, the value of what we're spending our money on, our clients or even ourselves. Um, where it's, is it worth it? Is it not worth it? Oh, is this a waste? It seems like a waste. Uh, people yeah. don't take into account the stress that you're relieving from yourself um, by also, in a lot of cases, you know, spending that money in that way. And that's something that clients need to be reminded of. You know, it's, it's therapeutic in its own way. And I know mm -hmm. the idea of, oh, just throw money at the problem is a little gauche, right? But exactly. also, it often can, can work. It can, you know, <laughs> if you have the money to throw at the problem and you can just buy away the stress, then it, it's a valid consideration. But I will say, David, you know, 
in, in today's day and age, not all of us are Aristotle Onassis and Christina Onassis who could write a $20 million check. I mean, we all wish we had those issues. But, you know, I think when you're working with clients and you're working with second marriages, never forget the power of things like a Q-tip, right? A qualified terminable interest property trust where, you know, the, the patriarch dies, his second wife inherits, but the asset be held in, in trust for her benefit with reversion to the kids at the end. The other thing I often like to do with these complex families is if we've got kids from a prior marriage, give them money up front. Maybe you set up a life insurance policy or life insurance trust on the patriarch if it's his kids from a first marriage or on the matriarch if it's her kids. And if that person dies, rather than building resentment for the, the, you know, the, the stepmother or the stepfather, the kids at least get the insurance money up front that can help mitigate some of the tension that can arise in these complex family structures. Yeah, and also by giving them a little something or, or anything up front, it sort of strengthens any sort of in terrorum clauses you might want, any sort of threats that you might put in the will. You know, we mentioned earlier that, you know, Aristotle Onassis built in all these, well, if you challenge it, then you forfeit your rights to X, Y, and Z. Well, that's in, you know, just in a lot of wills, you know, if you challenge it, you forfeit your rights to X, Y, and Z, but you haven't actually given them anything, then that's really kind of, it's scary sounding, but it's, right. it, it's largely toothless, right? It's like, oh, I'm forfeiting my right to nothing. I'm challenging, you know. <laughs> but, no, but it was also- Scare me. His mindset about estate planning is unique, and I think it's something we should take a lesson from. Most people go into estate planning and it's drudgery. They don't want to do this. This is uncomfortable. I don't, you know, as long as it passes, it's fine. And he saw it as something different. He was a businessman. He made deals all around. He understood that an estate plan has a sort of legacy aspect to it, but also a transactional aspect to it. He saw it as another business deal. And I think with people with assets, shouldn't be afraid to put that hat on occasionally, which is, look, I want this to pass to my family. I want everyone taken care of. I want to meet my charitable goals. But at the end of the day, this is money. It's a transaction. And if things aren't going to work out the way I want, I want people to be able to get out. And that's an important thing. And not enough people do that in their estate planning. Yeah, absolutely. It takes that sort of self-awareness to not only identify, as you said, that this is another business deal, but that you're not going to be part of it unlike every other business deal you've made in your entire life. Exactly. But you still have dead hand control. <laughs> well, you'll avoid it as much as you can. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's all the so. time we have for today. I'd love to thank Megan for being just a great guest, as always. Megan Gorman, thanks, thanks for, so much for being on. Thanks for having me. I love talking about this, and I actually like talking about good estate planning. Well done, yeah, Aristotle. It's, it's nice every so often to, to get a good one in here with all the, uh, with all the disasters we talk about. Exactly. And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.